All right, so we are starting a brand new series as we head into the Christmas season. Some of you, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular, have been in the Christmas season for months, especially those of you who are in retail because it feels like Easter Christmas. It feels like those are the only two seasons that happen in the stores around us. But as we go into this Christmas season, we have called the series, and maybe the, the lights and the decor are giving the theme away. The theme for this season is a light in the darkness. But before I say anything else, don't you think the stage looks absolutely amazing? I think our team needs a round of applause. So maybe I'm just being such a typical pastor right now, but, but when we go into the Christmas season, and I know some of you really love the Christmas season, I'm always concerned that we mistake some of the cultural dynamics of Christmas for the real thing. That we mistake, we get so excited about all the food we're gonna eat way too much of. And we get so excited, or maybe not so excited, to be with your family and friends. And we get so excited about some of the rest, hopefully some of us are going to have. And for us, that is what Christmas is all about. Or maybe it's more of the nostalgia surrounding some of the more Christian, traditional sides of Christmas. And so you see those Christmas cards and your heart gets all warm and fuzzy inside. And you see the pictures of the angels, you know, and the sheets around the baby manger. And you're like, ooh, ah, and that's what Christmas is about. But what I'm really hoping as we look at this candle here on the stage in front of me and in front of you is that this candle helps us truly focus on the light of the world this Christmas. Now, not all of that stuff is bad unless it gets in the way of us truly seeing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for who He is. Now, for those of you who have grown up in churches or you've been in Sunday school and maybe you've seen some of the sort of Christmas movies, and I'm not talking about the rom-com ones, you know, but the ones that try and tell the traditional Christmas story, there are a couple of traditional go-to passages in the Scriptures that speak about the story as we know it. Those are most notably found in the book of Matthew and Luke, and those two gospels tell the story. But we're not looking at those narratives. We're looking at the gospel of John. So if you have your Bible here, please turn with me to the gospel of John chapter one. And I wanna tell you what I believe is going on here in the gospel of John. You see, whereas when we look at Matthew and Luke, we see the traditional elements of the story. You know, the wise man, which by the way, only came a couple of years later after Jesus was born, but, but nonetheless, the wise men are there and the angels are there and the shepherds are there and mom and dad are there and we've got this little baby boy, you know, all those typical images in our mind, that's Matthew and Luke. John tells a story very differently. In fact, if I never told you that John chapter one was about the Christmas story, you might never have seen it for yourself. And let me tell you why. Matthew and Luke wrote the stories down a lot earlier in their lifetimes. 
and they were telling the facts of the story. John lived to be a lot older than Matthew and Luke. And so he was telling the story as an older man. Some people think that he lived to be 80 or 90 years old, outliving all the other disciples because sadly they were all martyred for their faith. But John as this old man, and John, by the way, was the disciple that Jesus loved, meaning when he was in his 20s and his 30s, he had this incredibly close intimate friendship with Jesus. He probably had some insights into who Jesus was that maybe all of the other disciples didn't necessarily have and enjoy. Now he's an older man. Decades later, he's reflecting back to those things that happened, who knows, 50, 60 years before. He's had some time to reflect on those years. And so what we're getting in the gospel of John is not necessarily always the facts of the story. However, some of them are there. But we're getting some of his reflections as the Holy Spirit helps him see what was truly going on. And so he's reflecting on Jesus. He is theologically interpreting the Christmas story for some of us. And so having that background, let's go to John chapter 1. And let's see what we can get from God's word this morning. So John 1 verses 1 says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, as we read those first few words in that passage, some of you who've grown up in church and most definitely some of the audience that John was writing to they would have read those opening words and said, uh, that sounds familiar. And John is doing this on purpose. He's trying to get our minds to go to the easiest verse to find in Scripture, Genesis 1 verses 1, which says, in the beginning, God. So he's intentionally getting us to hear the echo of Genesis chapter 1. And so in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, we read, in the beginning, God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning, the Word. And if you start connecting those dots, John's like, that's exactly what I want you to do. But we're also getting introduced to this really strange concept called the word. And I'm sorry, if I'm the only one who gets excited about the next five minutes, at least I've got energy for the rest of the sermon, but there's a whole lot of cool stuff going on here. Already, John has said, hey, reader, I want you to think about Genesis 1. In fact, why don't you have that page open? I'm not saying you must. John wants that page open in our minds. And what is Genesis 1-1 about? It's about the story of creation. And how did God create? He created by His Word. Now, I don't know, I'm an agnostic on this, I don't know if God kind of used His tongue and His teeth and His vocal cords to vocalize something. And if he did, I don't know what language he would have spoken. I know some of you speak the Himmelsatol, so maybe it was Afrikaans, who knows? But I think the idea is this, when God created, did he have some other substance to work with? Think about a word. 
You've got a concept in your mind. And that translates into something that comes out of your mouth. And as you find the words that match your concept, something living comes into being. Now I'm not talking about the word of faith stuff out there, but there's a creativeness about language and about words that originates from within you and helps someone else see something. And somehow in the same way, when God creates, it just starts with Him. Everything that he created, he didn't need any substance prior to that. And so the kind of metaphor used here is that God by his word spoke creation into being. And so John is saying, are you tracking with me? The word here and the word here. But then John says, oh, by the way, the word was with God and the word was God. And so we've somehow got this separation, but this connectedness between the concept of God and the word in John 1, which would have got some Bible nerds smiling and nodding their heads. Whether it's some of the Bible nerds here or the Bible nerds of of John's time. You see, when you look at the word of God in the Old Testament, the word of God would often come to his prophets. And so God would give them his word and what to say. But there are a couple of really strange passages where coming with the word of God was a connected physical appearance of God. Only one or two places. And some of the Hebrew Bible nerds, they've been scratching their heads for hundreds of years. I wonder what's going on here. And John says, well, let me tell you all about it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so let's read on. Remember, we're in Genesis 1, and we're on in John 1 at the same time. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. God's kind of creative dynamic is being associated with this aspect of God known as the Word. In Him was... Wow. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And here's our focal verse for this season. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now remember, John's engaging our imagination. We've got Genesis 1 open in our minds. We've got John 1 open in front of us. We're thinking about creation. What is the first thing that God created? Light. God created light. So before God created light, what was there? Well, if we go to Genesis 1, we read in verse 2, it says this, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so the story of the Bible starts with darkness and God. And then God, out of His very being, creates light. And from that point onwards, as that first light 
pierced that darkness, that darkness could do nothing to contain the light of creation. And as a result, whether we continue reading in Genesis 1 or we look at these verses from the light of God, as well as God's creative ongoing activity, we got all of our existence, we got all of life, all finding its origin in the light of God and in God's life. And so from God's life and God's lights, we get all of our biosphere, we get our worms and we get our pocktown prawns and we get our dolphins and our whales and our trees. We get our husbands and our wives and our kids from there. And from that point onwards, every living thing is dependent on light and the life that only God can truly sustain. So he's saying, Stephen, this sounds like a biology lesson. I thought this was about Christmas. But I'm just trying to build up your imagination so we can start smelling what John's cooking here. And so when we do start narrowing down on his points, there's something in us that is moved as all of this comes together. Because John is saying this word, this creative dynamic of God that mysteriously even seems to have an appearance in some of the stories of the Old Testament that is with God and is somehow separate from God. This word in all of its power and all of its divinity entered human existence. The language John uses is a light came into the world as the word became flesh. And so whereas Matthew and Mark tell the traditional story from the postcards, John 1 writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the Christmas story, according to the Gospel of John. That expands throughout the whole letter, but if we just look later at a few verses, verse 9, where it says this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so not only is John connecting our imagination to the opening pages of Scripture, God's creative power, this light piercing the darkness. And in the same way, that is what it means when Jesus came into the world. John is also leaning heavily on some of the prophets, some of whom were around 700 years before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah who was 700 years, years before Jesus, he, under the inspiration of God's spirits, was looking ahead to this very moment that John is speaking about. And this is how he wrote it, Isaiah 9, verses two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now we go, oh, that's Jesus. I want us just to cast our minds back to the time of Isaiah as, as he's writing down these words. And as you hear them, you might ask the question, who is this light going to be? Who is this great light all about? And if we literally read on just a few verses later, we start to find some familiar territory because Isaiah explains this in verse six, for to us a child is born. 
To us, a son is given. Does that sound familiar to anyone in this room? These words saturating our Christmas imagination, saturating our songs and our Christmas carols. The government will be on his shoulders and he, looking forward to Jesus Christ, will be called our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting father, a prince of peace. So this great light, this new dawn piercing our darkness is none other than the word of God that John is talking about, Jesus Christ coming into the darkness of our world, aka our Christmas story. And all of these threads pull together. Now there's something really cool, I think, going on here in verse five, where it says, the darkness has not overcome it. Some of your translations may say the darkness has not understood it. Now in the original language, those two ideas are kind of intention there, which is why some translators have gone this way and some have gone that way. But there's something really cool going on there. Think about when you've had to wrestle with really understanding something. You know, a concept in mathematics maybe in high school. And it's just, man, you, you're hitting your toes and you bruising your shin as you try and understand this concept. Your teacher's trying and then the moment comes when the penny drops and you've understood it. You've grasped it. You've mastered it. And John is saying, if we see it this way, the darkness of this world has not fully grasped, has not fully understood all that God was doing in and through Jesus in this Christmas season that we're remembering. But if we think about the other side, just like I can grasp and master and overcome a concept with my mind, the same word is used if I grasp your hand and if my arms happen to be more powerful than your arms, I can overcome you. Which is why some translators have said the darkness has not overpowered the light, has not overcome the light. And so most scholars believe John is intending both of these ideas. The darkness hasn't understood the light and it hasn't overcome or overpowered the lights. The reason is just like in Genesis 1 and now here in John chapter 1, Light always wins. Light always wins. And Lord, we just want to claim that over ESCOM today. <laughs> and so John's kind of going, listen, dear reader, if you can just somehow in your sanctified imagination, just cast your visual mind back to Genesis chapter one and to the best of your ability, have your mind and your hearts blown by what is going on there. John is saying when you read these verses concerning the light of the world coming into the world of darkness, I want your mind in the same way to be blown. I want your heart in the same way to be overwhelmed with the majesty of this moment. When I was about 10 years old, I was living in the Eastern Cape. And um, one of the towns that we would sometimes go to 
for, for a holiday was Otsun. And if some of you know where Otsun is, it's just inland from George. And uh, Otsun is often associated with uh, ostriches and ostrich eggs and there's uh, crocodile farms. And then of course, the great Kango Caves. As a young guy, I've been able to go to the Kango Caves a number of times. But on this particular occasion, we went, I was about 10, we went on a school trip. And so if you know anything about the Kango Caves, one of the greatest cave attractions here in South Africa for tourism. And so you pay your dues and then you go into the cave and you walk into this massive, this massive cavern. It is 98 meters long. 49 meters wide and 15 meters high. Just guessing, that's about five or six of these buildings just in that first cavern. And from there, you see these beautiful limestone formations and stalactites and stalagmites and these curtains and they shine lights on them in such a way as you start to use your imagination and you start to see, just like we see pictures in the sky, we see pictures in these formations. And then from there, you go to some smaller caves and there's some really tight spots that you can't go to and those who can dive and and explore these things, there's just so much going on there. But while these caves hundreds of years ago would have been lived in by some of the sand population of the time, they moved out about 500 years ago and it was pretty much lost to popular imagination until a herdsman was looking for an animal and he saw a little crack and he walked in there. Now you must understand, we know, oh, he's going into this massive cave. He had no idea. And all he had was a single candle. And so to try to help us understand what that was like, there's all this tour group and we're only 10 years old. They turn the lights off. And that's, I mean, I don't know if some of you are claustrophobic. I'm luckily not, but man, those who are claustrophobic started freaking out. It is the blackest black you've ever experienced. Now I was always kind of on the smaller side of my peers, but there was one kid who was always just one size smaller than me. And I felt like a big, strong kid because as the lights went off, he just held onto my arms, right? Because it was quite overwhelming. And then they light a single candle. And so in this darkness, suddenly you see a light. I did the calculations. The volume of that cave was 72,000 square meters. And 72,000 square meters of pitch darkness could not overcome the square centimeter of light. And when we saw that light, suddenly we had hope again. Those who were feeling fear suddenly felt less fear. Those who were looking for the way out were suddenly reminded, okay, there is light and there is more light coming our way. And that is what John's trying to get us to imagine when we think about the Christmas story here. Now maybe when you think about the darkness of creation and how desperate our cosmos would have been for some light. Or maybe when you think about being in this cave, sorry if it's freaking you out, but being in this cave and the darkness being so heavy and so palpable that you were desperate for light. I wonder if in the same way, when we think about our world, the world that God entered into, if we're as aware of the heaviness 
of darkness. Now, Craig, as you were leading worship and Ross, as you were praying, you highlighted the fact that for some of you here, whether you're here online or sitting here this morning, you don't need to be reminded about the darkness of this world. You know the darkness of this year very well. And once again, I'm not simply referring to ESCOM. But you know the darkness of depression. You know the darkness of anxiety. You know the darkness of loss. You know the darkness of almost giving up. And so you're saying, Stephen, I know the darkness and I know I need a light. Maybe some of you are, are, are maybe enjoying a different dynamic of life right now. You're experiencing some of the goodness of life and there's enough in the bank at the end of the month and your relationships are going well and just things by, or, you know, by always are just looking good for you right now. And so maybe you're not as aware of darkness. But if we do just think back and take a step back and look at this world, I don't need to tell you that there is darkness all around us. That there is darkness around the corner from us. There's darkness in our own hearts as we are our own worst enemies sometimes. And so maybe as you think about that darkness, you're again feeling claustrophobic and helpless. Stephen, I need a light. I need a light. I need some hope. And that is exactly what God wants to give you this Christmas in Jesus Christ. Now, I love this metaphor of a candle somehow being so stubbornly present in the darkness of a huge black cave. Imagine, uh, sorry, I'm engaging your imagination a lot today. But imagine somehow God could cause you to step outside of kind of space-time and you could see across history. And imagine somehow you could be shown in one pun intended, foul swoop, all the darkness of human history. Imagine somehow you could have imprinted upon your heart and your mind all the violence, all the wars, all the loss, all the pain, all the hopelessness of billions of moms, dads and children and as much as you're maybe struggling with your own darkness imagine being exposed to all of evil in one go man would any one of us stand would any one of us have any hope in that moment and just at the point where you feel so hopeless God takes you and he takes you to a part of history which for us was just under 2,000 years ago. And God says, I wanna show you something else. And he takes you to the time of the Roman Empire and you're like, okay, cool, we're going to Rome. We're going to some great powers. And God takes you past the great powers of the time. He takes you past, past some of the great temples of the time. He takes you to this little nation who was experiencing their own darkness, their own oppression. They were under the military power of Rome. 
They had experienced great loss, great violence in their recent history. They were looking for hope. God takes you there, but he doesn't take you to their great temple where they remembered and worshiped their great God. He takes you to the part of the country where no one goes on holiday, where people have strange accents. And he takes you to the bush, to the countryside. And he shows you a family a family that weren't even able to give birth in a home. And they were literally giving birth out most likely in a cave where animals ate. And imagine this little baby was pointed out to you. The law of averages applies probably 3.5 kilograms. Parents were probably bleary eyed, trying to figure out what this cry means versus the cry five minutes ago couldn't hold his own weight, couldn't hold his neck up. And imagine you were told, you know all this darkness that has overwhelmed your heart? Well, here's your light. I wonder how many of you would have been so confused at that point in time. You mean all that heavy, oppressive darkness and hopelessness? You're pointing out this little baby boy, you're saying, that is my hope and that is my light? God says, exactly. It's the candle in the darkness and the darkness has not understood what God is doing and the darkness has not overpowered what God is doing. And while looking at the Christmas postcards, maybe it feels like we're looking at a candle in the middle of all of this vast darkness, while that may be the beginning of the story, that most certainly isn't the end of the story. See, John says the darkness has not overcome it. But you know what? The darkness tried. Aside from the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus, there was an attempted murder on his life over nine times, well, at least nine times. When Jesus was under two years old, Herod tried to get every baby boy under two years old killed when he heard that this other king had been born. Jesus' hometown, the people who grew up with him, tried to kill him when he proclaimed himself to be the God of this incredibly rich passage, Isaiah chapter 61. On a number of occasions, the religious leaders of the time tried to seek Jesus out in order to kill him. And because it wasn't his time, Jesus always managed to evade them. But then, of course, that moment came which we recognize as Easter, where the powers of darkness converged and the light of the world hung upon a cross. And the moment came where he said, it is finished, and he died. And in comparison to time that we have, for a split second, it looked like the darkness had overcome the light. Scriptures tell us that physical darkness came over the earth at that time. Hopelessness seemed to reign. But we know the story. We know that no tomb, no grave, no darkness, no death, no helplessness, no powers of evil could snuff that light out. And as Jesus rose from the grave three days later, he broke the back of darkness because light 
always wins. But that is still not the end of the story. I need to tell you where we're going. Because right now, there is still the presence of very real darkness. The light is still shining in the darkness. But the time is coming that we read about in Revelation 22 verses five, where it says this, there will be no more night. Now I'm not talking about nighttime. There'll be no more darkness, no more evil. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, light wins. And not only could darkness not overcome the light, but the time will come when the light completely eradicates all darkness. And so as we wrap up this morning, when you look at this candle, in other words, when we look at whichever picture we're looking at of Jesus, this baby in a manger, what fills your imagination? What do you see? Do you see warm, fuzzy nostalgia? The kind of Christian side of the Christmas, whereas the other Christmas stuff is what I'm really most excited about? Or do you see a religious distraction? Do you see something to be scorned? Oh, these Christians, they always want their own way at Christmas time. Do you see maybe something that you're like, oh, that's wishful thinking. I wish that story was true. When you look at the candle, the light that pierced the darkness, I wanna invite you to really see. To see the light that wins. Darkness has not understood it. Darkness has not overcome it. And light wins every single time. And so as I pray for us this morning, I wanna pray that God will help you see the light in our dark times. Let's pray. Father, I just think of that song that says, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. I think of the words of scripture that says, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we can see you, Jesus, and we can know you. As we come to this Christmas season with so much joy, so many things to celebrate and so many dark things that we're enduring, help us see. Help us see you, Jesus. When we go out to our families, when we go out to our workplaces, help us see you, Jesus. When we get overwhelmed by darkness, help us see you. Help us see you in people. Help us see you at work in this world. Help us see you at work within us. And just like that single candle in a dark cave, is a picture of more light coming. It's a picture of darkness does not win. It's a picture of hope. Jesus, would you truly become our hope? Truly become our life and our light in these times as we fix our eyes on you.
But Holy Spirit, we need your help. We are so distracted. So help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.